From the magnificent Midwest, it's the Suzanne Benker Show, where men and women are equal in value, but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week when we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives about men, women, sex, and love. From coast to coast and from around the world, thank you for joining us. This program is brought to you in part by Let's Get Real, where forensic accountant Tiffany Couch uses her financial skills to shine the light on the real issues we all face every day. If you'd like to make decisions based on facts rather than on cultural pressures, go to letsgetreallife.com, a place where you can find tools to improve your communication skills and to increase your connection to humanity. That's letsgetreallife.com. Today on the show, we're going to talk about four topics that cause the most marital conflict and how to resolve them. But first, two quick announcements. If you have not become a Patreon supporter, now is the time to do so. As always, there are four very economical levels, and those who sign up now at the $20 level receive a signed copy of the Alpha Female's Guide to Men and Marriage. This offer lasts through the end of the year only and then goes away, so act fast. I'm also offering 15% off two of my coaching packages, the premarital newly married option, which highlight the four main potential stressors of every marriage and how to resolve those now so they don't become a problem later, which ironically is the topic of today's program. And my new life coaching for college women option in which I help young women map out a life that actually works and that offers the best chance at true happiness. The coupon code for each of these packages, again, that's the premarital option and the life coaching for college women option is Christmas. X, well, not the word Christmas, take that back. X M A S. So capital X M A S, which we all know stands for Christmas. And this off, and this offer also continues through the end of the year. So act fast. And now on with the show. So today we're going to talk about the main four things that cause the most marital problems or conflict and how you and how if you and your spouse can get an agreement on these things, you're going to have a very high probability of having a successful marriage. Now, ideally, you would determine these, um, you know, you would work this out ahead of time before you get married, which is the reason I now offer premarital coaching, by the way. But because I'm not a fatalist, I happen to believe that any couple who's already married and who desperately wants to stay married can choose to get on the same page with these four things by learning a new way of thinking about them. And, you know, that just starts with basic awareness, right? Nothing that I'm going to say in terms of what these four issues are, if you've been married for any length of time, is going to surprise you because you deal with them every day. What I want to do is highlight the significance of them um, and how to deal with them and what I see in my coaching practice to help other people who may be struggling. Okay, so those four, I'm going to name the four things, and then we'll get into each one. Money, parenting, religion, and in-laws. Okay, so I'd say two of those are a little bigger than the others, although they all matter. Um, There's just a lot more to the money and the parenting. So I'm going to start with those two and then move to religion and and in-laws. Okay, money. Yeah, money, money, money. Okay, money and marriage. I have to say, this is my first time really delving into this topic in any kind of public way. And it, which is funny because it's it's such it's like the literally biggest part of marriage and there's so much tied to, tied into it and we all experience it. So we're all connected in this one way. Um and and to begin, what I had originally planned actually was to talk to Rachel Cruz, C-R-U-Z-E, who is the daughter of Dave Ramsey, 
I don't know if any of you follow Dave Ramsey or know who he is, but he's a big financial guru and he helps people get out of debt and learn how to budget and how to invest. And his whole operation is, is just a based on money and how to win with money. Um, he has various Ramsey personalities, one of whom is his daughter, Rachel, and she has a new book out. Actually, it comes out in January called Know Yourself, Know Your Money. And I had Rachel scheduled on the Suzanne Banker show uh, within the last month or so, and her publicist had to cancel. I don't know why, but at any rate, by that time, they had sent me the advanced reader's copy, and I had planned for the program and read the book. And I thought, okay, she can't come on, but I can still tell people um, the general framework that she came up with, which I think is kind of brilliant. And it's a great conversation and very, very, very helpful. So I'm going to pass it on. Thank you, Rachel Cruz. Do some little free publicity for you here. Um, although I'm not going to talk entirely on the money part about her. I'm just going to start with with what she unearths here. So she she was interested in getting into the why we behave the way we do. That's the whole purpose of this book. So her dad is all about the how, and she is too. And they've been doing this for years. And she wanted to delve into the why, which spoke to me personally, because I am a huge why person. I probably to a fault where I want to unearth and figure out the whys behind everything I do. And unfortunately, everything people around me do. So I try, so I try not to, um, to bleed over, you know, I never want to get into other people's business unless asked, but it, it, it is kind of funny being friends with me because people know that I, this is my thing. So, um, it's hard to to avoid this with me if you're close to me because I'm so into the why. So she she basically wanted to study and talk about why we behave the way we do and why we think the way we do when it comes to money. And marriage is, you know, touched upon there, but it's really not specifically marital, which I'm going to get into today. But the, the book is about money and how we think about it. And she delves into this and presents what, what is a really interesting analysis and I think pretty dead on that we all essentially grew up in one of two kind of classrooms, either a stressed classroom, she calls them the four money classrooms, a stressed classroom or a calm classroom. And within those, uh, within each of those headings, the stress and the calm, there are two, uh, two different types of households. And I'm going to go through what those four are. And the last one we're going to get to is the, is what she calls the ideal. So actually I'll just mention that first. It's called the secure classroom where it's emotionally calm and verbally open. And this is the quote ideal money classroom. So I'm just reading from her book. Now she says emotionally calm and verbally open environments aren't perfect, but they do reflect homes where parents practice healthy money habits and where kids feel the most safe and secure. Money doesn't cause stress because the parents know how to manage it well and are in control. If you grew up in this classroom, your parent or parents talked about money often and openly. There was calm, intentional decision-making around money. Maybe you witnessed budget meetings or budget date nights. It wasn't always easy, but these meetings were productive. There was mutual respect between your parents, and they were connected and on the same page. And unsurprisingly, I think that was her upbringing with Dave Ramsey. So that is what people pretty much everybody should be shooting for. That's the ideal. Okay. Now let's go back to what <laughs> most of us probably experienced. Um, within the stressed money classroom, 
there are two quadrants. So she, she puts all this in a quadrant. So there's one, two, three, four, and this one, and two are stressed and two are calm. So the first one is the anxious classroom. This is quadrant one, anxious classroom, where it was emotionally stressed and verbally closed. And what that essentially means, and my husband grew up in this one, this essentially means there was not enough talk or any talk about what was happening financially or about how to handle your finances or about what to do in the future about money. Like basically there was just no conversation, but you knew that something was amiss. Like in my husband's case, for example, he was a product of divorce and there weren't money problems that he was aware of prior to that, but it certainly was obvious after that because he went from a big house to a small house. Um, well, not just a small house. It wasn't actually that small, but a dumpier house. Let's put it that way. So that that basically was just this huge um, pivot point in his life. Um, and there, But there was no conversation. So you're just left to sort of piece it together. And of course, you're too young to really do that. Um, but at any rate, that's just his story. It's, they're not all the same. She writes here, Rachel Cruz writes, you grew up in an anxious classroom. If you felt anxiety or tension around money, but money was never or rarely talked about. Okay, so that's the first one. And then the second stressed money classroom is emotionally stressed and verbally open. So this is actually really, I'm going to try to break this down and make it really easy. You might even want a pencil or pen because it's really fascinating. Quadrant run, quadrant one, emotionally stressed and verbally closed. You felt anxiety, but money was never talked about. The second one, emotionally stressed and verbally open. That was mine. So you, your money in this and people who grew up in this environment recognize it immediately because it was seen and heard in these ho- households. Money was a source of conflict. Parents argued about it between themselves and the kids, blah, blah, blah. There's just, anyway, there was just a lot of openness. Um, and they, it's common for these, for those in this quadrant to hear the same fight over and over again. Now those fights might differ, you know, it could be about not having enough money or it could be about how to handle the money. Um, but regardless, there was both emotional stress and verbal openness about it. So you knew what was going on. You were very aware. And like, for example, my husband didn't understand all the details. I understood everything, but it was incredibly stressed. Okay. So those are the stressed classrooms. And then the other kind of classroom is the calm classroom. And here are those two quadrants. So this quadrant is emotionally calm and verbally closed. And you probably know or have friends who grew up like this. I know I do. If you grew up in this in this classroom, you probably didn't worry about money. In fact, you might not have thought about money at all. Being raised in a household where, but but the flip side is no one ever talked about it. So you were secure. You weren't worried because there was no stress about it. But you also were cl- basically you're clueless. So it says being raised in this class in a household where no one ever talked about money is very common. But those in this classroom felt like life was all good. Everything seemed fine. You had no idea of the state of your parents' money situation. You didn't have to worry about it. Maybe your family was well off, but just didn't talk about money around the kids. So the kids had no idea how money worked. You either believed there was plenty of money or money wasn't even on your radar. I have a coaching client right now that if she were listening to this thing would say, yeah, that would be me. She literally, I mean, basically the best way to say it is clueless. You grow up perfectly secure, but you just don't know anything about money and how to deal with it and how to, and the decisions to make, you know, to be secure in that regard, all of it. Okay. And then the last one is the one I opened with, which is the secure classroom. And we already talked about that. So the idea is 
you know, you, you, you grew up in one of those four quadrants, but the ideal would be to hit the secure classroom. So the reason why I'm opening with this is because once you determine which one you're in or came from, it's really helpful in terms of your perspective, because chances are you married someone who came from an opposite classroom. Not always, but a lot of the time. So your money mindset is going to be very different from his or her money mindset. And getting on the same page, despite those differing backgrounds, is key. That is what will secure your marriage, hands down, above anything else, is getting on the same page about that. Um, so that the, the, it's not that you have to marry somebody who comes from the same background financially. It's that you have to be in agreement about what to do with your money, how to think about money, and how to hopefully build wealth and security for yourself and your family. And you can't do that if you're coming from different, if you've come from different place and haven't worked out where you're going, despite those differences, that's where the problems come in. So for example, you probably know a lot of people who, you know, they, they have the same fight over and over and over again, their whole lives, because they never got on the same page about why they think the way they do and where they want to go together. And if they're going to be able to do it, how you're going to be able to do it and so on and so forth. So that stuff just sort of sits under the, under the rug and isn't addressed. So for, if if you're somebody who's well off and you married somebody who came from a more middle-class background versus a well-off background, then you're coming at the world and money and all these decisions from a very different perspective. And until you address it and understand it and get on the same page, you are going to have conflict. It's going to come up over and over and over again. Um, and that's what her entire book, by the way, is about. So that, that, that thing I set up for you with the quadrants, that's just sort of the, the beginning. That's the theme, you know, the, 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 I don't know what you call it, the setup for it, but the whole book is about, okay, now what? Right. Um, and the book is called again, know yourself, know your money by Rachel Cruz, C-R-U-Z-E. And when I think about people who fight about money endlessly, and don't ever have a conclusion or, or don't ever resolve it, like my parents, for example, it's because there was no self-awareness. It's because there was no ability to ask the why, to dig deep into their differing backgrounds, to figure out why you're doing what you're doing, why you're spending the way you're spending, why you think about money the way you do, trust, control, all of that stuff. If it's not addressed with your partner and then you get on the same page about it, you're always going to have conflict. It'll never go away. That's why this book spoke to me and I was so fascinated by it. And here's where it, here's where it comes into what I see in my coaching and just what I know from doing what I do. If there's one thing that makes that, if there's one thing that stands out about modern marriages, specifically millennial marriages, because that's mostly who I see and read about because they're the ones right now between the ages of, uh, 25 and 40. So they're, you know, young married couples with families is that they talk about money um, and think about money very, very differently from even from any generation before them, including my own. I'm a Gen X. So it's always been understood up until millennial and up until the millennial generation that when you get married, you're combining your lives. You're no longer 
his and hers, your ours. You are, and this is especially true in religious circles, but even if you're not particularly religious, there's an understanding there that you're no longer an independent agent. You are now interdependent. You're combining your life with another person. And that has to include the finances. It, it has to, or, or you're never going to really know peace in your marriage because that's such a huge part of it. So I can't tell you how many times I talk to, work with, hear about, read about couples who refer to money. This, this includes a lot of the call-ins to the Dave Ramsey show. They talk about money as being his and hers never ours. It's almost as, it's almost like they're roommates. They're no different from when they were shacking up, which a lot of them did um, prior to getting marriage, uh, prior, prior, prior to getting married. And so they just continue on with the way they were living when they were cohabitating uh, when they're married. And of course it's not working, which is why they call in with these problems because they're not, they haven't even set, they, they're not really married. I guess that's the best way to put it. They're just not married. They're just trying to be roommates with a spouse and it's not working. So I'd say that's that's the biggest sort of um, obvious if you hear or if you have children who are grown children, I mean, or people that you know who are talking about their monies in terms of separate, you know, everything being separate. Um, and you can't believe how ex- extensive this goes. This, I mean, I've heard stuff like, well, she didn't pay me back for this or she's supposed to pay for this and he's supposed to pay for that. I mean, really, I mean just a twisted way of looking at it. I've never even heard of that in my generation. So this is really new. And it's not a coincidence that their marriages aren't working. There's a direct link there and they're not getting that. So, okay. So that's, that, that goes hand in hand with, um, I mean, it's a little separate of an issue in that it's because millennials are coming to the table, marriage table with so much debt and they're the first generation to really do that. So that has a lot to do with it. But when you marry somebody with debt, Hello, it is your debt. You have just married debt. That's the way it is. When you marry the person, you take everything on, everything about them, everything about their background and everything about what they've done up to that point. So you can't get married and continue to talk about the debt. And usually this is student debt as his or hers. It's now ours and tackling it together is the only way out. So as long as that mindset is separate, you will have conflict and potentially divorce. No question about it. So that's the one that, I mean, that's pretty much the key on the whole money. The conversation about money and marriage is, is getting on the same page. Your views on debt, on spending, on saving, your ability to budget, all of those things, if it's not a team effort, no matter how you were raised, you will fail. You just will. You're going to, you're going to have continuous conflict. So it should be the number one thing that you're focused on in your marriage is the money, Um, which sounds, I don't know. Well, I don't know how it sounds, but it should be because at least from day one. um, And of course, not all of us did that. Some of us learned this later as we went along. I'm not suggesting that, um, you know, people come out of the gate knowing this, but that's one of the reasons why I love this book so much is because it forces you to think about how you think about money and behave the way you do. And then with, once you get to the why you do, then you can get to the, okay, where are we going? Are we on the same page about where we're going? And then how are we going to get there? So it's like a multi-step process, if that makes sense. 
Easier said than done, for sure. Um, okay, parenting. Parenting. Oh, my lordy, parenting. So I'm not going to spend too, too much time on this because if you heard my episode, my podcast episode from last week, you already got a whole earful. But the gist of the parenting is twofold. It's, it essentially comes down to how to discipline children. And then the second piece of that is to how to balance work and family. The first one goes back generations, right? How to discipline, I mean, we've been disciplining children since the beginning of time. That's every, every generation can relate to that. The balancing work and family is newer. So we'll get to that in a second. We'll start with the discipline. You know, when I, when I think of the word discipline, um, to me, it has everything to do with creating a structure and safety zone from birth to 18. And so at different stages of development, what I'm using loosely as a term discipline can mean, um, for example, if you're talking about babies and toddlers, maybe not so much toddlers, but babies, this isn't a discipline issue per se, but I put it under the same category and that's their sleep issues, things that revolve around sleep. If you don't provide the structure for, for proper sleep, that child will respond negatively because they need so much sleep in the first two years of life. I mean, just a crazy amount of sleep. And if you're not setting up a structure that allows them to get what they need, their bodies will lash out. So you know, it's not like discipline when you're thinking about, you know, an, an older person lacking, uh, lashing out, but their bodies will respond to whatever it is you're setting up. So the parents are responsible for setting the structure. To me, that's what discipline is. It's like, you're safe. I've got you, right? I've got you covered. When you're not there to do that, that's when the beginnings of the disconnect between the child and the parent, that's when it begins because they don't feel that they can count on you to get their needs met. And we've talked about this in prior episodes with um, Erica Komisar. Um, But um, as you go along from birth to 18, there's different developments there's different stages of development for how to discipline. So I think of babies, I think of sleep and providing that structure for them. And then from there you're getting into toddler period. And that is really when behavioral discipline begins. And the younger and earlier you start, the easier it is later. When you skip that early stuff and try to do it later, it just doesn't work. And there's a lot of people who really struggle with how to discipline and again, that probably you could, somebody could do a whole book probably on our early classrooms about that and what we learned from our parents about discipline and how we were disciplined or weren't disciplined as the case may be. And then when you go to get married, you're bringing that mindset with you and you're trying to raise a family with this other person whose ideas about how to discipline may be very different from yours. And that's where problems come in. And of course, you also have not just your beliefs about discipline, but your personality. That plays a big role. So if you're not somebody who's capable of being strong and firm and consistent, you know, if you're flightier or if you don't like to tell, you know, if you if you feel like you want to be your child's friend or if you, you think of it more as a community effort, you know, all these, you know, sort of new age concepts that don't work, it's because you're not providing that structure and they don't feel safe. So if you're married to somebody who doesn't know how to do that with you, you're going to constantly be fighting 
a battle that will never end. Again, just as you need to be on the same page when it comes to money, you've got to be on the same page about discipline. It makes the entire parenting experience so much easier when both the mom and the dad are firm and consistent with their discipline and in agreement about how to do so. Um, I mean, or I should say agreement about what that discipline looks like and what, you know, how to proceed with it, you know? And of course, to some degree you have to, I can hear people thinking, well, okay, it sounds good in theory, but how do you do that? At the bot, at the end of the day, it's self-awareness and recognition of even if you don't know what to do, you at least deal with it. You know, when I think about so many discipline problems that I've seen over the years, it has to do with even if somebody's weak in one area, okay, that's, you know, we're human, that's fine. But it has to be addressed rather than just not addressed so that every day you're dealing with the same problem over and over again. And in order to fix it, of course, you need self-awareness. Do you have to say, where did I, why, why am I afraid to do this? Or what is it that, I mean, a lot of this has to do with fear. You know, what am I fearful of if I um, handle it this way versus this way? What do I think is going to happen? You know, and, and so, so I'd say discipline, the parenting issue with discipline is just, it's pretty huge. I mean, it's uh, not to go back to my own parents, but that was a huge problem in their marriage. In fact, it's so big. I'd probably say it's the biggest. Um, again, because they weren't on the same page and they were not. Yeah. I mean, that's it. We weren't on the same page. Getting on the same page is the answer to calm and peaceful home life, uh, to a calm and peaceful home life, being on the same page that your marriage and the two of you are first and foremost in the home. You are, you're it, you know, you are one team and you're, no one can get in between you. I think that's the best way of putting it. It's because when a kid knows that one's strong and one's weak, they're going to milk that like nobody's business. And so, and that's where you get into the fights with your spouse because the strong person is mad at the weak person. So um, yeah, it's, it's very complicated. Okay. So discipline um, number one, number two, how to balance work and family. Now this one is newer the disciplining issue is old. I mean, everybody, any generation can relate to that, but the balancing work and family is new in the last 20 years or so. Um, I mean, people have been balancing work and family before that, but I mean, it's, it's really front and center to the point where it is, it is actually hurting marriages, this particular topic, because it's so ingrained now that most people are doing it to some degree. There's currently about a quarter of mothers who are married, who do not work, who are not employed. I want to say that right who are not employed outside the home at all in any capacity throughout all those years, the children are at home, about a quarter. The vast majority either work full-time or part-time. And actually, when you really put them together, the part-timers and the not employed at all is larger than the full-timers. So the full-time working mother from birth to 18, you know, year-round, full-on is not the norm at all, which is really shocking to hear because in the media, you would think it's the opposite. But at any rate, um, so the, there's a reason why this, let's put another way, let's put it differently. There's, it's not a coincidence that I've had in all of my coaching with, with married couples, I've had only one stay at home mom client. And that 
issue, the issues that they had were not related to balancing work. Well, obviously, were not related to work and family matters. It was something else entirely. Um, the vast majority of my clients, their marriages are basically in crisis, and it's and it's not a coincidence that those women, those wives, are working full time despite having young children. That's what I'm trying to say. That the more you're attempting that lifestyle, the more conflict you're going to have. There's just no question about it. When you And all the research shows this too, that if you're home with your kids and you have one person primarily responsible for this domain, and then you have another person pr- primarily responsible for the other domain, where's the conflict when it comes to that? And there's other conflicts, but w- when it comes to, you know, playing tit for tat or kind of being mad at each other because you're not, you know, the life isn't fair with the, what you're doing. It just doesn't come into play. When it comes into play is when you are literally living the same lifestyle and you're mad because you're feeling put upon because the other person is doing less or more than you, um, or well, less than you. Um, and so th- that's, that's another huge thing about parenting that if you get on the same page from day one and determine, which I still can't figure out why people when they're dating are not figuring this out, what do you want to do? What do you want your life to look like when it comes to work and family? Do you want to be home most of the time and working a little bit? Do you, are you going to be a full on career woman where you're never home and you hire other people to raise your kids? Are you going to um, stay home for X amount of years, then go back in part-time or full-time? I mean, you have to, and who's going to do what, you know, with respect to these two things. Um, To me, it's just a no brainer, but I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it's still very new, believe it or not, that it's not, um, Right. Whereas people should know to talk about money when they're dating, or at least figure that part out about each other, even if you don't openly talk about it. Um, I don't think it's so obvious with the work and family. I think people think that it's just going to continue the way it was pre-kid. And of course, it doesn't, it doesn't do that at all. Once you put kids into the equation, everything changes. So you have to really know what you want in advance, ideally, uh, before getting married. And it has to be figured out with the other person. Now, if you're already married and it's not working, again, there's no reason that you need to get divorced over it. You just simply have to make lifestyle changes and start to think very differently about whatever it was you thought you were going to do or what you thought you wanted. If it's if it feels differently down the line, so fix it. Everything is fixable. You have it's all figure outable. I have this sign in my house that I really love that I just found from Hobby Lobby and it says, "Everything is figure outable." And it just, it spoke to me because I, I believe that. And that's an attitude that you bring to the table that makes things work. And if you have a more, you know, no, that can't ever be, you can't do that. Or, well, I'm stuck now, or obviously nothing's ever going to change. And I, I don't accept that. I believe that problems are, most problems are solvable. So again, if you miss the boat on that when you were dating, I don't think that means you're screwed for life. I just don't accept that. You can always change your life but you have to be willing to look at it and say, this isn't working because of ABC. And then once again, getting on the same page, that's going to be the theme of this hour is being on the same page. That's the answer to a successful marriage. When you're a team, everything can work. When you're against each other, it falls apart. When you got married, things were perfect. You were both in love and life was good. Then somewhere along the line, everything changed. She changed, or maybe he did. Either which way, now your relationship feels, well, hard. 
I coach husbands and wives who feel lonely, disrespected, or misunderstood in their relationship. So many women today are desperate for their husbands to step up to the plate, to make a decision and to stick to it, to lead rather than to follow. Ladies, you have the power to make it happen. Men respond best to women who are grounded in their feminine core. As for husbands, so many of them want their wives to stop nagging and to just trust them, to smile more and to complain less, to look at them the way they did when they were first dating. Men, you have the power to make it happen. Women respond best to men who are grounded in their masculine core. The secret to lasting love rests in the masculine-feminine dance. Once you master it, your relationship will no longer be difficult. You'll be moving with the biological tide rather than against it. And that makes marriage smooth sailing. If you're struggling in your relationship, if you feel frustrated or alone, I can help. Just go to SuzanneBanker.com, that's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-V-E-N-K-E-R.com, and click on the coaching button at the top. Don't wait another minute to acquire the mindset you need to find love and to sustain it. It's so much easier than you think. That's SuzanneVenker.com. Okay, the last two, religion and in-laws. Um, I'm going to start with religion real quick. There's not too much to say about that other than this. Religion, because it's taken such a nosedive, a lot of people think it's not as much of an issue anymore, but they're surprised to find that it actually does become an issue once you have kids, because it's really often not for many people until you have children that you realize, oh, I, I have to. I have to t- be able to tell them something. They're going to ask questions that I can't answer if I don't know what I think, right? When it comes to spiritual and religious matters. So ideally two people from the same faith have a better chance at making a marriage work, but more important than that is to agree on how to raise the kids within that framework. So for example, um, like in my, like in my, in my marriage, my husband is Catholic Um, My kids are Catholic. We actually all went to Catholic school, but I'm not technically Catholic. Um, And I'm less grounded in that realm than my husband is. So he's sort of the leader in that regard. And we we follow his lead on that. And I don't get in his way. Um, So I go along with everything and just, which is very, happens to be very comfortable, comfortable for me because um, my mother actually was Catholic and she left the Catholic faith. So my extended family is all Catholic. And I, as I say, went to Catholic school. So it's all very familiar to me. I just never technically became Catholic. Um, and I'm not as faithful as he is, but I don't stop it in any way. So you, again, the most important, and, and that happens for people who are of two different faiths, they come together and they decide which one's going to take precedence because if they're really conflicting, that's problematic. Um, so that's pretty much all there is to say about that. Just that it's it's great if you can marry somebody from your same faith. That gives you a leg up for sure. Um, and some some cultures, like Jewish culture, they really don't consider anything other. And that's and that's understandable. It's a very strong type of faith, and they just don't want to marry outside of it. And for the most part, um, anyway. So that's that's the ideal. But the most important thing is again just that someone is that the parents agree on which, which one's going to take precedence. Okay. Last one is in-laws. So I'm pretty fortunate in this regard personally, but I have seen a lot of problems when it comes to in-laws, especially in my coaching practice. And rather than get into all the different, I mean, everybody who's listening to this, who's married understands what I mean by this. You know, you, there's, you know, every family's got its stuff and you could fight about it your entire marriage. If you want to have at it, that's a big fat waste of time. You're never going to change anybody. So the only thing you can do for your marriage to keep the conflict at bay is to set boundaries so that the two of you 
once again, going back to the team, create a sort of fortress around your marriage. And you're very clear about what you let in and what you don't let in. And what I see in my coaching practice is that somebody's always upset about someone, the other spouse's relationship with a, a sibling or a parent. Um, if you're too tight with your parent, um, one of your parents, both of your parents, uh, your siblings, whatever, and you're putting them before the marriage, that's where the problems come into play. Big time. So again, when you get married, you become one. And that family, that marriage, whether you have children or not, it's a family. That's a new family you create. And it comes first. It takes precedence over your family of origin. And I'm I'm just continually amazed at how many people don't do this. It's like they're still married to their families of origin, um, and 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 go to them with with marital problems that they shouldn't, or side with them, or um, um, confide in them about things they really shouldn't be confiding them in. Uh, confiding, how do you say that? Confiding with them about. Um, so that's, that's, that's where the problems start. When the two of you are not setting boundaries and creating a fortress for which the outside world cannot penetrate. That's, that's, that's basically it. So you have to sit down with your spouse and figure out, and that wouldn't be something that, um, that would be harder to do probably in premarital coaching, but can definitely, and should definitely be done after the fact when you're, if you're continuing to run into problems it's going to be a lifelong fight if you don't sit down together and figure out those boundaries. So there they are, money, parenting, religion, and in-laws. And the common theme with all of those is to get on the same page with your spouse and to not stop until you do, no matter how hard it is. Um, And part of that involves well, a lot of it, all of it involves self-awareness. And um, if you if you get on the same page, if you can get on the same page about those four things, the chances of your marriage being more successful or at least having significantly less conflict is just huge. Just huge. Okay. We are going to move to the email of the day. This is from Sasha. She writes, Dear Suzanne, thank you for your podcast. I've recently discovered you and have been listening to it whenever I can. I was wondering what a good mother-daughter relationship looks like through the years. My daughter is now eight and I'm a bit lost on what a relationship should look like or if I'm even doing a good job and I'm worried about the ensuing teenage years when I will have to address the problems I see with the ubiquitous ubiquitous feminist worldview on women and marriage slash motherhood. How will I influence my daughter positively? So I think I've addressed this a little bit in past episodes, but the reality is, and in fact, a really good answer to this question is, is my last episode last week on counterculture, how to raise counterculture, how to raise countercultural kids. But the reality is the only way to counteract the stuff that you see and the stuff that your daughter is getting thrown at her left and right is to simply pass on your values and your beliefs every chance you get. 
it's going to feel like an uphill battle a lot of the time. Like you, like, do I even want to do this anymore? Maybe I should just let it go. Don't let it go. Don't let it go. You stand strong on what you believe, who you are, and you pass that on during that small amount of time that you have her because it's not going to be long. So that if she hears stuff about sex um, that you, well, of course she will, that you don't agree with, or if she hears stuff about, um, you know, how to map out a life where, you know, she becomes a career woman and she never gets married or has kids and, and you know, she wants to, then you gotta, you gotta correct that. You've got to tell her how, um, how, how and why that's not going to work to approach life that way and not be afraid of it. Um, it's really about you. It's really not about her, your daughter. It's about you getting comfortable going against the grain and knowing that even though it may not feel like she's listening, she is listening. She's absolutely listening. What you say matters. It doesn't mean she's going to do exactly. She's not going to necessarily do life exactly the way you do it, but you've planted the only seed you can, which is, um, the parental one, which has got to come, which is, is always in constant conflict, conflict with the culture. And for a period of time, it may seem like the culture's winning and it, and it may be, but hopefully down the road, um, when she matures, she comes around to understanding that what she has been taught is, is bogus. And if you never have told her that, I mean, I can't tell you the number of women that I talk to who, who say to me when I tell them, um, the kinds of things that I do that they've never heard anything like this their whole lives. No one's ever done that. And I do believe that's because parents are too, they're just too chicken. They don't want to go out on a limb and do what other people aren't doing. And then you're going to regret it. That's, that's just the reality of it. You're going to regret it because who the heck else is going to tell them if it's not mom and dad. And that ends this hour of the Suzanne Banker Show. Don't forget to continue the conversation on Facebook. Just type in the Suzanne Banker Show in the Facebook search bar and it will come right up. Also, please recommend this podcast to one friend you think would enjoy it. And don't forget to leave us a review on whatever platform you're now using. Finally, if you have a question or comment for me, you can email me at Suzanne at the Suzanne Banker Show.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week. <laughs>